Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome. We have another exciting interview this week. But first, Ellen, we have to talk about California because this oh. is California. So because um, there was some earthquake and it fell off. They no, no, I, I not yet. Okay. I mean, and it was pretty cool because it was my first one, and I was really excited. Um, but <laughs> it was cool because it wasn't that bad. Because it wasn't dangerous. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no. So I actually live in California, and I think there's a a huge misperception that everybody who lives in California lives in Los Angeles. And I don't have that experience. Uh, it's cold where I live all the time. We only experienced like one month of summer and in it's in October. So I'm really excited because I'm looking <laughs> oh, forward to summer still. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but what is your experience with California? Is it all Beverly Hills, all Los Angeles? Uh is it not? No. Uh, so I also lived in California, although I don't currently am in Colorado. Uh, but yeah, no, I went to undergrad in California, Berkeley. And I do remember I went out for a camp, a debate camp, super nerdy in the summer when I was in high school and being absolutely shocked when it became super cold. Like I, I think the camp what? was in July and somehow it was like really, really cold and I didn't even bring a coat. I like go buy sweatshirts <laughs> and quickly learned about the, you know, the famous Mark Twain quote that the the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer, summer. in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's funny that so way. True. Um, so yeah, true. Yeah. No, California is fantastic. I miss it, but it was very expensive living in San Francisco for a decade. Yes. And, uh, and actually on the other end of that is the person we're interviewing today is from Beverly Hills. So uh, yes, the other end of probably also expensive. not particularly affordable and has its own kind of, you know, fame. Did you, did you watch the show back in the day? I didn't. I mean, mm. I know all the characters cause I'm of that, that strata of generation, but yeah. I did not watch the show. What, what were you like a Brenda? Uh, but yeah. I didn't watch enough of it to even know what I am. So that's the problem. Uh, I never actually watched it. Yeah, no, like I know what the show is, but I did never watch it. Yeah. So, um, no, what about you? Yeah. Do, you do you have a favorite? Since uh, I know so they're rebooting I, it. I feel like I like um, watched the show like undercover, like illegally, not illegally, but our, <laughs> it was like during the time that our parents wouldn't let us watch TV. Watch TV, yeah. Unless it was football uh, or the Weather Channel or something. Yes. So I, I think that's still true, though. I think that's what their, their TV is still on all the time. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm sure I'm like the the like nerdy girl, if anyone, if I had to be a character. Not that yeah. I would want to, I think just by default, I'd that's what you would be right. i would aspire to be one like the jenny garth like she seemed cool but. right seemed nice girl next door very mm. sweet yeah but yeah but back yeah. to beverly okay, hills sorry. and this um this very specialized egg donation agency out of beverly hills that um helps find the the top of the top egg donors so we were very excited to talk to the owner of beverly hills egg donation Welcome robin perchik the managing partner of beverly hills egg donation we're excited for fascinating stories about egg donation and all the complexities involved in that area and talking to such an expert. Before we dive into all of our questions that we're burning, you know, burning questions to ask, do you want to give us a little bit of background about what, um, to tell us more about your expertise and what led you to this position? Well, as you know, this is a, a kind of an interesting arena both from the uh, logistics of it as well as the um, 
ethics of it. And um, uh, <laughs> I started, my background in, is insurance. I spent 30 years as, as a risk management insurance underwriter right out of college. Um, I had, um, again, it was my first job out of college. I went to law school while I was working uh, for the insurance company, had three kids during that time. And I was, I had, I was going to retire. And at the same time, I was leaving the insurance industry. The woman who had started Beverly Hills Egg Donation was selling the business. And I thought to myself, well, um, my background is contracts, sales, customer service. Um, I have no medical background mm-hmm. other the fact that I'm uh, married to a physician in this field. So that's convenient. I, I, it was convenient. That's, to, that, that's it, helpful, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a great way to learn what you don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll never be the doctor, but you need you, you do need to have a basic understanding Very of true. you know the nuts and bolts of the process. So, you know, without looking back, I just jumped the wall into uh, the fertility field, which I had been living with, um, you know, tangentially for 25 years at that point. How did you even know about it? I mean, how did you know the owner? Did you guys, were you friends or how did that? We we knew each other, um, through my husband. So, okay. Um, okay. So did you practice as an attorney or I'm I'm actually really fascinated by that. So you went to law school, but you never, you never, never practiced, practiced so, as an attorney. Oh, okay. No, it was it was kind of interesting. I had two teenage boys, and I was pregnant with my third at that point. And um, you know, sometimes when you're in your forties, you start thinking about things you hadn't gotten around to. So, <laughs> yeah, I decided. Yeah, 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 I know I that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> on on the bucket list, list, go to law right. school. Why not? Right <laughs> on the bucket list. I can't explain why. It seems a little sick, actually. So I went to. <laughs> I went to law school at night. I was the valedictorian of the class. I had nice. a child. I had my final, my third and final son um, during my first year finals, and um, but I never practiced. I mean, it, 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 it's it's a great education, and it, it prepares you to not be afraid of contracts, or it, it just it does change your life and give you a different perspective on government. But um, um, you know, I didn't really feel like I needed to. Uh, be a practicing lawyer to accomplish what I set out to accomplish. Um, I, I think many, awesome. many attorneys would probably say you're you're not missing out. So <laughs> I, I, I'm not I'm not jealous at all. I am a little sad that I didn't go to law school, you know, ten years earlier. But oh. um, but I did I did it. So it's like a check mark on the list. That's awesome. And, uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to go backwards. So, I just was really fascinated by that. No, no, no. no. Back so you hadn't even been working with egg donation when you jumped in full force of buying an egg donation agency. Correct. Wow, that's amazing. That is impressive. And how, how did that transition go? <laughs> it's a little yeah. scary. <laughs> I made lists and lists of things that I didn't know. And, um, you know, I, and it, used, it looked like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So my husband would come home for dinner and I'd like, have a few questions before you eat. And like, yeah. this list would come out. And I would sit there and I'd take notes and, um, and, you know, I read a lot. I still can't do an egg retrieval, but I, can, I have enough details to, uh, you know, to tell people the nuts and bolts of it for sure. Yeah. So, um, so what surprised you the most when you started? What surprised me the most? I would say um, how emotional this is. I, I, was unprepared, you know, 
basically because insurance and law are not, it's not that they're not emotional, but they're not emotional. They're transactional. They're, um, by the time women get to me, they've been through the, they've been through the ringer with multiple IVFs and failures and they don't feel good about themselves. And there's, um, you know, it's a totally different you know, paradigm in the uh, LGBTQ community because they're just, they're happy to be on their journey and getting help. And so it's different. And I, I was not uh, prepared for the depth of the emotions involved. Yeah, that's so. funny. So I always laugh. So I did um, hedge fund and investment management law for a big firm before I switched to uh, assisted reproductive technology. And I was like, I'm going to do happy law. And it it is at times, it's also very, very sad and very heartbreaking law at in many points that, I'm, that you experience as well. Um, so tell us about Beverly Hills egg donation. There is many, many organizations out there that do egg donation matching. Kind of what what makes you guys unique yeah, right. um, in that in that field? Uh, well, there's an, a number of things. Um, well, we do have a real office in Beverly Hills, which oh, um, it's funny that people from LA just <laughs> never come to the office. Not never, but rarely. <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, I commute. I totally get that. But the international. Uh, intended parents are always in my office oh. and mm-hmm. um, and it's one block off of Rodeo. So people come and they have lunch and they like to meet the donors. And sometimes you have lunch with the donors and it's um, um, in terms of differentiation, we, we do not share donors with other agencies. We have an exclusivity policy. We, we meet all of our donors and have notes on the interviews. I encourage intended parents to meet the donors. I would, if it was up to me, everything would just be, you know, open arrangements, but it's, yeah. uh, they're not all open, open, but I do encourage them to Skype and meet. And, uh, uh, the majority of the donors are open to it. There are some that just want to be anonymous, anonymous, which is just I think, a little naive in this day and age, but yeah, I'm curious. Um, what do you advise those given home DNA tests and just everyone finding everyone? What do you tell them? I say, do you have a digital footprint? <laughs> Because they all do. So, um, but even even without yeah. that, it's like if her second cousin took the home DNA test, like you can you can know. find you can get pretty close with that. So um, yeah, we were talking know, to they know we're, about that. We were talking to somebody from Ancestry.com recently, and she said that from a, it takes a fifth cousin, and you can find pretty much anybody. She said if once two million people in the United or in the world have taken DNA tests, you can find anybody. And we've obviously gone way beyond that with, with how many people have taken them. So that's, it was really fascinating. Yeah, no, I believe it. There, there is no anonymity. So it's it's naive to believe that, you know, um, even if they don't want to sign up on a, a sibling registry, it's naive to believe that nobody's going to find you. So we do uh, make a point of discussing this with them, you know, in the process and also asking them if they're open to meeting children at age 18 or earlier. Mm. And what are are most open to that, or what, how do most react to that? I would say more than fifty percent are, and and I do look at donors differently if they're more open. I mean, I'm just that's where and I want to be. You look at them more favorable. Isn't I that? do, I do, because it was up to me. Uh, and I think it's in the best interest of everybody to just, um, you know, not make a big deal of it and just acknowledge it. Yeah. And Have you had? Have you had situations come up yet where someone had intended to be anonymous and now right. someone's coming back asking for their information or kind of any 
issues along those lines yet. Haven't had it yet, but doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So, um, but you know, I, I have facilitated meetings with donors and parents and your children, and uh, and it's fant- fantastic. It's just fantastic. It's 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 kind of, it's funny though. For those who might be newer to egg donation, what kind of screening do you know? Egg, does an egg donor go through normally, and what do they go through with your organization? Well, it's a, a multi-tier process. The first thing that they would do is it. it um, fill out an online application, just a few questions. We're looking for age, BMI, post high school education, and the ability to pass the FDA application. So we don't want to be, we don't want to be sending donors into doctor's office offices um, who can't get off the ground, who can't get off the ground because they have, you know, lived in Europe for five years or whatever, whatever the issue is that's going to make them not pass. So we, we do that first. And if. Is that, is that one? If you live in yeah. Europe for five years, you're uh-huh. disqualified? Yeah. Oh, interesting. And there's, there's also, there's also, you know, living in different countries during the, the mad cow episode, you know, mad, the, the mad cow years in Europe. And there's also. My, my husband lived in England during that time, so he can't donate blood for that reason. Yeah. Right. So, and it's, it's pretty much the same as blood. It's, it's also, you know, tattoos and piercings. It's. Zika travel, it's, you know, it goes on and on. The, the FDA application is pages and pages. And, and we have that from, um, you know, the physicians that we work with. They're all basically, the FDA rules are the same for everybody. So if you pass this little initial screen. What's, what's the most common thing to screen people out? Is it travel or is it something else that generally disqualifies them? Well, the Zika will pull out a lot of people because people don't realize that, you know, if you go to Cabo, you're disqualified. You go to the Caribbean, you're disqualified. South America, Southeast Asia. Oh, wow. Is um, it go so anytime or had to be within a certain time period? Well, you, you have to be six months out okay. from that. Okay. So, so you can just wait. Um, so that's a big disqualifier. We also get a lot of people who are under 21, and the doctors are kind of split on whether they'll work with donors under 21. So we tend to just work with donors who are 21 and up. And, um, and the other thing is BMI. So we're looking for donors with BMI 25 and lower, which basically means that they're, you know, thin and fit. But, um, Very slim, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, the, the the thinner they are, I guess, the less not the thinner they are, but at, at a certain point they would need to take more medication if their BMIs were higher. So, um, you know, we're looking looking to minimize all of that. Got it. So we feel like when we talk to intended parents and ask them about how they chose their egg donor, that most of them start out, you know, their background and their education. And then really so many are like, well, okay, it came down to looks. <laughs> I don't know. So I'm curious with your intended parents, like, is it so much um, like physical attributes and looks or is it really more in depth that really their background or some combination? What do you, What are you seeing? Well, just getting back to the application process. So um, our secondary screen is, is personal and family health history. And because I'm really mean, and I make them write an essay about themselves and why they want to be an oh, egg donor. Oh, wow. Yeah. And because um, I was an English major <laughs> in my prior <laughs> life. And, and I think- So part I, of it is their know, writing can, skills. <laughs> well, you know what? Not many people can write. But I, I do like to see what, and, and I do, we do- um, 
get their information about their education, their ACT scores, SAT scores, and if they're academic achievers, we get the documentation on it, so we have that on file. Um, in terms of how, how people make the decisions, it's the most interesting process. I mean, I think this is probably the other biggest point of confusion that I've had is that you really can't make any assumptions about how people are gonna, going to make a decision. There are some people who are looking for donors who have four alive grandparents. Meaning, you know, that, you know, in their mind, that means that the genetics are superior. Of course, even thinking back to when I was in my 20s, I, at that point, I had, I had two grandparents die when I was in my 20s, and I was the oldest of three children. So I guess it's not a bad, uh, not a bad measure. I, Although there's some reasons um, that you don't necessarily know why they don't have four. Like, what happens if there was a car accident and some, but you know, like, you don't know why, yeah. No, we do ask, we okay. do ask how they passed. And, and you can see that there's uh, a lot of lung cancer from smoking and a lot of all sorts of things from right. from accidents mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, genetic issues. So we have some people who look at family, personal family health as 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 the number one criteria. We have some people who who uh, look at looks as the number one criteria. We have a lot of people who look at height <laughs> as an important criteria. So yeah, we don't want them too tall. No. And <laughs> academic. I don't know. Everybody Other way, right? that comes everyone's to me. Everyone's tall. 5'10", so. So an academic achiever and uh, local if possible. And that's, you know, <laughs> okay, sure. But um, Do people I, actually I, look for local if possible? I mean, that's really fascinating to me, the, especially for an egg donor. Well, two-thirds of our do- donors are in uh, between Santa Barbara and San Diego, so they are kind of local. Um, so local to you, they're not yes. talking about local. I'm sorry. Okay, I see. Yeah. So not local to the person that they're donating to. No, That's no, no. Local, I, local I just to the clinic. Local to their okay. clinic that they're planning on using. So that 100 I mean, makes sense. Yeah. No, h- half of the people that we work with are coming in from outside the U.S. So. Okay. That's why I was like, um, oh wow, because donation donor the the person being donated to can be anywhere. <laughs> so, no, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm sorry, sorry. No, no, no. It's um, perfect. I just didn't quite. I, it was my misunderstanding on that end. Right. No. And it's it's just fascinating to see how people make their decisions. Um, and I, I always ask people what they're looking for because they generally have some idea of what they're looking for. And if, and, and if looks are not the number one criteria, they'll tell you that. If it's academics, if it's um, you know, genetics, if it's whatever it is, they'll, um, some people Do you want- see people change their mind as they start looking that they didn't realize what they were looking for until they really got into the thick of the search? Yes, yes, I do. It's, it's just like kids in college. You go in thinking you're going to major in this and then all of a sudden you're, you're right. you it over. It's, it's right. not unusual. It's okay. not unusual. So somebody will come in looking for an academic achiever and end up with a model. So <laughs> it's not not uncommon at all for that to happen. Um, it, it is a journey. It is a process. And when you when you ask intended parents to sit down and start prioritizing criteria, it's an interesting process. And they get uncomfortable about it because sometimes they say, oh, I feel so shallow. I, you know, this sounds so shallow. And I just try to make them comfortable and say, you know, you're creating, you, you have a choice to create what you want. So 
you know, write down your criteria. I'm not in the judgment business and we'll get you what you want. For some people, they want a donor that's open and they, they want to meet the donor. They want to be able to contact the donor and that's the number one priority. Um, and everything else will fall in under that. Uh, I'm, I'm, my job is to facilitate the match, to find the situation that's going to make both parties comfortable today, tomorrow, and, uh, and down the line. So, Do you see much of that, um, those criteria on the other side where donors are saying, you know, I only want to donate to this type of family or this, you know, these kind of people? We, we do ask the donors directly if they have any restrictions on who they'll donate to. Much as it dis, it's very uncomfortable for me because I don't really, personally, I, would, I want the donors to, get, to be happy in the situation, but I feel very uncomfortable saying, you know, I don't want to donate to a single parent, which is what I hear mostly from them, which I have no problem with single parents and it's better than having other situations. So... Um, so we hear that sometimes, but not very often. And over the years, it's been less and less. And that's very, that makes me happy. Uh, <laughs> have, you had any, yeah. have you had any strange requests from intended parents? I, it, it goes on all the time. <laughs> I mean, and nothing, and, and nothing is strange. You know, yeah, and you can share. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I uh, have had intended parents want wanting pictures of the donor's ankles. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Oh, is that, is that telling? What does that mean? I don't know. I like there's a genetic predisposition to canker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Wow. So that was kind of funny. And I, I mean, you know, sometimes you just try not to laugh. Um, I like, okay, I get that. Um, we, we do get a lot of family and sibling pictures and we get requests for that a lot. And we do get videos as much as we can of the donors. <laughs> I haven't had anybody ask for copies of their, you know, pictures of their mother's legs, but mm, I'm sure one day I will. Matter of time. Um, There's a suggestion no. for parents. <laughs> See if they have very varicose veins or, uh, no, I haven't You should just start yet. the profiles with like, okay, here's her ankle. Oh, oh, you want to see her face. Okay. That's fine. And and we get interesting questions like, is, is there balding in the family? Most men do get bald at some point in time. So it's, it's always kind of fun to track, track down. <laughs> right. Um, it does get interesting. Sorry. So tell us about your intended parent. It sounds like they come from all over. Um, it's 50% international and that 50% international is split, uh, 50% Europe and 50% Asia Pacific, Asia Pacific, meaning Australia and China primarily. Oh, wow. Interesting. And, and it makes for a very busy time zone life. <laughs> I have um, two people who work with me on the East coast and they handle Europe because that extra three hours is just really hard. Yeah. And uh, we handle we work with the people from China and Australia from the West Coast because, you know, they're waking up at 2.30 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's a little easier for us to handle that than our East Coast folks. Yeah. So you but never it's, sleep. It's all time zones all day. It's, I just keep, I keep my phone nearby. Let's just put right. it that way. <laughs> I have, I have Beijing time on my watch. So I keep both oh, on my watch. Good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I have to remember to check check my WeChat every day. So right, 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned beforehand and I say that you talked about traveling. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about meeting with intended parents. And, and it sounds like you have a pretty, pretty fun travel life as a result of your, your donation agency. I do. And it's, and travel is a hobby of mine. So if you put together a hobby with, with, you know, the opportunity to expand your business network, it's just a fantastic fantastic uh, opportunity to meet people across the world. So I, I do do conferences from time to time in different places, but um, I don't do conferences all that often. I, I do meet with different, you know, um, concierge agencies or surrogacy agencies in different countries and look to see if we can develop some, some partnerships um, and some synergies. So I, I do have people that I work with and doctors that I work with in Australia and, a number of agents that I work with in China and and, and Israel and the UK. It's just very um, interesting and rewarding. I'm happy to meet with the IPs when I when I travel, and a lot of them will take me up on it. Uh, I'm still a face to face person with with all this technology and the ability to do things with websites, and I, I still like to sit down and look somebody in the eye, and answer their questions, and I, I think it's comforting to them if they're in the UK and I just, you know, I'll tell them when, when I'm going to be there and, and we meet in a hotel. And when I go to New York on business, I rent office space there and just uh, meet with potential IPs and it works out really well. So I like to travel. It's good and it's bad. There are, there are weeks and months where it feels like I just come home and throw everything on the floor of the room and repack and leave. But, you know, I know but that feeling. I think, I think I'm a binge traveler, actually. And now uh, I saw one of my friends yesterday and she said, are you, are you home? Right. Now? And <laughs> how, home? how long are you? Home? Said, you just got home from an international trip, right? I just got home from two weeks in Israel. I'm home for six weeks. So mostly home. So that's a lot. That's a pretty long stretch. My parents don't like it that I travel so much, but... Aww. <laughs> parents, always, parents always worry for the rest of your life. It's all right. <laughs> right, 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 right. My mom saw my travel schedule. She wasn't happy. She was like, can't you just, you know, it's actually easier to go abroad than to go to Beverly Hills every day. So, <laughs> so you had mentioned a, a quick story earlier talking about um, meeting that you got, you've gotten to meet some of your babies even. Right? You've helped uh, help the families grow. Yes. I, we, I was re recently in Shanghai for the first time and um, I have stayed in touch with the families that I've helped, some of the families that I've helped and, uh, and watched the kids grow up and met the grandparents um, when they came to take the babies home, even though they didn't speak any English. And we, we had a really nice dinner with the babies and with the, with the parents and, uh, you know, all different dynamics, you know, same-sex male couples, single parents, heterosexual married couples, and just all different dynamics. And we all had dinner together and, and the babies actually know each other. I mean, I kind of, I introduced them, the parents. So um, it, it was just so sweet. It really, um, I, I have to tell you, the most rewarding thing is to just see the love of the parents for these children that they, you know, agonized over having you know it's, it's a journey for every everybody yeah and um can you tell us more from your perspective how egg donors are treated i mean obviously you're you're talking to the choir with the two of us who supports this area but there are people out there making you know movies about how donors are exploited and um this shouldn't be permitted what are from as a, such an insider what are you seeing for for egg donors of 
why they come into it and how they are being treated going through the process? Um, I, I will tell you that I have no doubt that if, if this was available when I was in college, that I would have done it because I worked through college and had a lot of strange jobs <laughs> that, were, that didn't pay very much. And, um, and, and I had to support myself pretty much through college. Um, are they exploited? I don't think they're exploited. This, first of all, this is a voluntary universe. Second of all, you can't make a living out of this. I mean, I, I look at this as something that takes the heat off of expenses for a grad student living in LA. I don't see it as, uh, you know, something that you're uh, doing as a livelihood forever. Um, well, and there's a huge, and I think part of this misperception is there's a time limit in between, right? They have to wait. You can't just like donate eggs every month back to back to back. No, and most of the donors don't do that anyway. They're, the doctors recommend at least a 60-day wait period in between, um, which is two cycles in between. But the, most of the donors are not doing that. They're taking a couple months or six months in between sometimes or longer. And um, the recommended limit is six um, donations, as you can see. That was the other thing I was going to say is they can't just keep going on and do 12, 15, you know, well, those kind of things. that's correct. They can't. But having said that, there is no way of tracking that currently. Okay. There is no registry. So unless you happen to run into it, and we have run into what I call them serial donors, um, that will do, you know, three donations for this agency uh, and four donations okay. for this agency. Yeah. You know, so we've run into it. It's not something that anybody really um, wants to be involved with, but that, that is. So uh, does your agency have a limit that says, you know, we won't work with you after six or if we know you've hit six between us and other agencies? We, most of the people are working with that six limit. Um, sometimes there's sibling cycles and the doctors are okay with that. There's some doctors that will do more than six, but uh, the majority of doctors will only do six. So, and is it based on her health or kind of the number of children related to her? What are, what's the, the, the primary motivation of six? Are you, you're, you're just going to get my sure, personal yeah, spin no on this because the ASRM doesn't tell you why they're thinking what <laughs> they're course. thinking. Um, I, I don't think it has to do with the number of children because you look at sperm right. donation and, you know, they are having hundreds of kids. Um, I think it just has to do with, you know, limiting the amount of uh, medication um, that people are exposed to, but I don't know, it could be just, could just be an arbitrary number. What does that protocol look like for an egg donor? The protocol is the same as anybody going through IVF treatment. So, um, when you think about it, most people who are going through the IVF process are only going to be doing it a few times theoretically. Although I will tell you, we, we get people from Australia routinely coming in having done 20 IVFs. Oh, Wow. Uh, because the government will pay for it, but they won't allow them to do egg donation um, unless it's altruistic. So um, if you want the details of the drugs, I'd have to get that from the, no, no, uh, that's fine. the doctors. But similar but, to but, an but IVF. It's, it's the exact same, exact same protocol as, as IVF treatment. So the, the, they're getting drugs to produce more eggs than you would have in a normal uh, menstrual cycle. Right. Okay. And do you see a lot of, and I know the big kind of bugaboo in, <laughs> in donor world is the hyperstimulation. Do you, do you see a lot of doctors who are being very conscious of that now and making sure that they're, that the donors aren't, aren't being hyperstimulated? You know, the protocols vary by doctor and by clinic. And um, I'm always happy 
to hear that a doctor is doing a, a Lupron trigger, which produces less eggs and also has less of a chance oh, of hyperstimulation okay. than a HCG trigger. So um, because my background is insurance and I look at trends, I know I know where the hyperstims are coming. So right. <laughs> shall Got we say? It. Um, and I, I do watch that a lot. So when you say are are you know, when, you know, going, going back to how are the donors treated? Um, I watched that like a hawk and I, I once got, had the opportunity to stand in an, in an ER within a donor's family. And that was not a place I was going oh, again. Right. Okay. What okay. Ha- and I swore that happened? day that I would do everything I could to, uh, avoid that. So it, that was that hyperstimulation or some other complication. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was a hyperstim. Oh. It was a hyperstim. It was just, you know, so um, I think the doctors have also gotten better about it over the years, but um, we've also kind of, we've also changed the way we've watched things. And the insurance company that does the donor insurance has also um, watched the way things are done. Uh, the insurance company that we use actually requires the doctors to write a letter about the trigger if the donor has a previous hyperstim. So, you know, we're on it. <laughs> That's the good news. Um, and That is great news. So when a donor or intended parents are looking at who to work with this process, what can you advise them? Like what are red, flat, <clears throat> red flags to, to watch out for with perhaps other or other organizations they might be thinking about that you might not recommend? Well, you know, I don't generally don't like, I'd, I'd rather talk about what I do than badmouth other people. Yeah, you know no, I mean. no. So, and, and definitely, they're, they're, definitely they're, don't need to name anyone specific, yeah, right. just kind of the, the best no, practices no. and the just, variety versus like what's a right. good thing to look for. I, we have exclusive donors. We don't share donors. We don't say we have huge amounts of donors because, you know, the, there are large segments of the industry that share donors um, who may or may not be available or, you know, these these are... I feel like the donors that we have, we have a relationship with. Um, um, I'm the mother of, of three sons and, and the grandmother of two grandsons. And I have, you know, 250 daughters who call me for the, you know, kind of strange things, including, you know, when they have rats in their own apartment. And what you <laughs> so um, <laughs> I do really get to be, um, it's a, a kind of an interesting relationship. Um, so it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, ask, ask that question carefully of, of any agency you're thinking about working with. Like, do you, what are the chances that your donor is actually going to be available if, if I choose a donor from your pool? Right. And uh, they should also ask about screening. I mean, we AMH test every local donor. So you're not going to get a donor who hasn't had a recent PAPS, recent PAP, recent STD and an AMH test. So they're going in and pass and can pass an FDA application. So they're going in as close as we can get them without, you know, physically doing um, all the, the 100% of the screen. They're going in with enough, I think, to be able to get through the initial visit without getting bounced mm-hmm. out. Um, I will tell you that with the AMH testing, which is an indication of ovarian reserve and how they're going to respond to the fertility medications, uh, most of the doctors want an AMH of two and up. And I will tell you that about 25% of these young women, and this is just colloquial, I see them with AMHs under oh, two. Wow. 
which means they're going to have their own fertility issues oh, potentially. Right. So they don't, I look they at don't this, even realize it. Yeah. They don't even know. They're 20, you know, 23, 28. And then when I look at them and say, you have to go see your doctor and you may want to start freezing your own eggs for your wow. because you're, you're not going to respond to the medications. 25%, that, that seems so high and scary. That, that huge I, percent I know, of the and again, it's just, and it's, it's, very, it's, it's colloquial. Yes, okay, I'm, I have no real study. This is just, and it goes, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll test 10 people and, and half of them will fail. Sometimes we'll test 10 and eight of them will pass. Or it's, but it, it just struck me that I, I really did not expect to see AMH is below two in a young population. So yeah. you didn't realize you'd be uh, advising your donors on their own fertility as well. Right? Well, that, yeah. And you know, there are, there are times when I feel like a public service right, operation, yeah. but that's fine. It's fine. The AMH test is not that expensive and I'm happy to do that and, uh, you know, send them where they need to, to go. But that is a hard, that's kind of a hard conversation to have with a donor who <laughs> somebody wants to be an egg donor. It's just like, um, listen, not only can you not be a donor, but you need to go get on this. Right. Yeah. Which actually and, uh, is probably hugely helpful that she learned that early and really opened her, her options. It is really. It's, waiting it is. And not knowing. It is. Uh, you know, I always tell women in, in their 20s who are my, my, my friends of my, my children and my cousins, friends, um, you know, I, I don't want to see you in my office. Just go start taking care of things now because they're all professional people and they're still in the middle of their, you know, med school, law school training. And uh, yeah, don't put it off. It doesn't, it doesn't get easier with age for sure. Um, also in terms of best practices, I, I don't work with international donors. Okay. To me, it's a risk management issue as well as a tax and visa issue. Um, and I just, I don't want to go there. So um, I know that there are a lot of international donors coming in. Um, on, on tourist visas, okay, you know there was an IRS ruling that said this is considered work. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, when it is considered work, you need a work visa, not a tourist visa. But, you know, there's all, all of these things going on. And, again, is the donor going to show up? Are you working with international situations? So I, I just stick with U.S. residents and people who are able to work legally in the U.S. So, you know, if they have a green card, but they're, I would say they're 99% U.S. residents. So you mentioned, you, you alluded to uh, the Perez case. Um, that, that affect especially things like, I, I know the big fear was, oh my goodness, compensation for donors is going to skyrocket through the roof. D- did you see a big change when, when that came about? How did that, how did that impact and change things? Um, it, well, it, in the donor's mind, it changed things a lot. Um, I there are some donors who who get elevated compensations, and in my own mind, I think there's a point where it doesn't feel good. But uh, there are people who want you know perfect academics, and they're willing to pay. I don't know if it's genetic. I can't tell you if it's genetic or uh, you know <laughs> hard work. But people people have that in their minds, and uh, it, it is on some level a free market. So you did see some level of change, though, as a result of that. Yes, yes, there there is some level of change, and I, I see some of the specialty group donors, like 
high, high academics or um, generally the higher academics getting higher compensation. But I see the advertising all the time, you know, way higher than, than you know, $10,000. I think $10,000 is, is not a bad number for... That's what I was going to ask what those those numbers are. So is 10,000 pretty average at this point or how, where does that fall in the spectrum? Uh, the donor fees right now that, that we charge are 8,000 for a first time donor and 10,000 for a previous donor, unless the previous donor has requested a specific fee, you know, for some reason. I, um, and I do try to talk them out of it most of the not not always successfully, but you know they will they will sit and wait for the fee. Which and if it happens, that's fine. If it doesn't happen, I'm not going to be that concerned about it because I've already told them I didn't think it was. You know, you know they they hear from their friends that you know who are also egg donors that they're you know they're charging twenty thousand dollars as a donor fee. Which you know if if there's something special going on. Yeah. What is the highest one you've ever seen be successful? If you, if you are able to share, obviously no anonymity of the person, you know, I mean, no telling who the person was. What's the highest donor fee that you saw successfully be paid? Uh, six figures. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and can, I mean, without being too detailed, was it academic or what, I mean, kind of what was the, that? It was, it was, it was, it was academics. It was academics. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It was, it was the whole package. Right. But probably combined with, you know, height and perfect. Yeah. But that's, that's an outlier. It sounds like that's very, it's a real outlier. That's a real, that's a unicorn. So, yeah. No, I, I, I feel very comfortable with the 10,000 limit. I, I, it is a surgical procedure. I do think the donor should be compensated on that basis. It's not like sperm donation. Okay. It's just not, it's invasive. And, um, I, I think, I think that's an adequate, um, amount. So I, I just personally, when the donors come back to me and their previous donors that I've worked with them and they say, I won $40,000, I look over my glasses at them. <laughs> Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Well, that's nice. I'll be glad to tell them that. Yes. But, you know, people, they don't get, they don't get picked at that level. Yeah. Um, Unless there's something super special going on. Right. So we, we kind of touched on that there's very little regulation when it comes to egg donation arrangements. Like there's no limitation legally on how, how often a donor can, can donate um, or no regulations in terms of anonymity or right for a child to know their genetic donor. Do you have thoughts on whether you think regulation is coming and either way, what you think regulations should be if you, if you do think it should be in place? Do I think, I don't know if I'll see regulation in my lifetime. It doesn't bother me because I come from that background. I actually was hoping to start an egg donor registry, but I got a lot of pushback from a lot of people on it. But I, I do own the domain name and I have a site built out ready to go that one day maybe I'll get to. But um, um, but people wanted it for different reasons. Okay, I wanted it as a risk management tool to, you know, A, to get rid of this, the serial donor issue and B, there are, you know, there's there's so little conversation in, in, in the industry about um, there are people who should not be donating. Okay. And, um, and, and we hear about it from time to time and 
There just has to, there has to be a, mecha, a mechanism to, you know, to stop this, even in the HIPAA world, even in, you know, like, and what are, I mean, what are you, can you give examples of what you're thinking about with someone who should like they, like a mental health illness that could be genetic or. Yeah. There are mental health things. I, I catch them on Facebook every once in a while in, in the, in the professionals, you know, section saying, you know, has anybody seen, you know, this donor with initials. And um, I do think that regulation would take this out of the equation. Um, but, you know, then again, you know, I don't want to be the DMV, nothing against the DMV, but um, <laughs> you know so what I mean. Everything I mean, against can, the DMV. You can, <laughs> you can regulate this to, you can regulate this to a mind numbing level. Okay. Um, I just think that there are some basic rules that everybody should follow consistently. Um, and I, I don't see that happening. So I think that having a registry would be a good risk management tool. I think it would also allow for um, long-term studies of any potential health risks. But, you know, what can I tell you? My insurance background keeps popping up <laughs> um, in, the, in the strangest places. Do you have feelings on this argument that um, a child conceived from donor egg or sperm has a right to know their genetic background? Do you do you think that they should have a right to know the identity of a donor? I think that they should have the right to know that their donor conceived, for sure. Um, I actually spoke on a panel in Australia with adult children of donors, and um, and one of them, and both successful young women, and one of them had met her sperm donor, and one of them was not interested in meeting the donor, but she knew she was donor conceived. I, I I think something has to be left in the parents' hands. I, I do think it's the child should know because the, you know if you find out uh, through genetic through twenty three and me that you are you aren't who you thought you were. I don't think that's a good thing. But um, whether or not you are connected with the donor, I think that has to be worked out with the donor and the intended parents. I and mean, we talk about that a lot um, in the process of of you know, what kind of future contact do you want and for what reasons? And a lot of the, everybody pretty much wants medical contact. God forbid you, you need to, to understand something about the donor's um, health history for medical reasons. Uh, but, but in terms of actually meeting the donor, the, the intended parents are split on it. Some, some it's the number one item on their, on their criteria list and others, you know, for the parents, no, for the children, you know, kids are always going to be curious. I think if you give them that opportunity, they're going to take it, especially when they're 16 to 18 years old, um, to be able to eyeball somebody and say, mm -hmm. are my eyes like your eyes? Um, what about from the donor perspective? How often do you see, what is the split there? Do they want to have the opportunity to meet them or do they want to be left? And I'm not going to say anonymous because we all know anonymity isn't a thing, but unknown basically. Right. I, I would say more than 50% of them want to want to leave that choice in the parents, the intended parents' hands, which is fantastic. You know, they basically say, I'm not giving you my name and phone number, but if you want, contact the agency and or, or contact the attorneys and we'll, and we'll go through it that way. But um, they're not intending to be at the, 
the, ch- the resulting child's birthday party. They're leaving in, in the intended in the parents' hands on how they want to handle it. They want future contact. They want to. It is, it is not as what was described recently as a slow kidnapping attempt. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, was so, that was so yeah, funny. Exactly. No. Yeah, no, and then it was intended and, to be uh, funny. So yeah, <laughs> no, 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 it was funny. I'm not. I, it was. It was funny. funny. Don't, don't. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not a kidnapping attempt. And uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think the donors are generally um, curious, but they're not intrusive. So they're curious, but, you know, not that curious. Do they generally have, have they, is your experience that they've thought through like the future order effects, like what their children will think about those things? Do you guys talk to them about that? Like what their children or their future spouses might think about the fact that they have donated in the past? Well, they all go through, you know, a psych screen. So that's kind of where that would pretty much be addressed. Um, but having once been 22 myself, I will tell you that <laughs> I don't think things are all all that thought out in your, when you're in your 20s. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know that they're 100% thought out. I mean, I've changed my own direction in life a few times, thoughts on every subject about 10 times, so. Well, one of my favorite cartoons is like this couple, you know, this this man and a woman on a first date or something. And they're like, kids, you, you know, do you have kids? And he's like, well, no. Well, but I was a sperm donor. So maybe <laughs> hundreds. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, Anything? You know, when, when I was. Tw- yeah, sorry. Oh, no, tell your story. When I was just saying when I was 22, I, didn't, I wasn't sure I was going to have kids. So the fact that I have three kids and, and in this field is, is a little mind <laughs> Right. Um, anything kind of pressing or interesting that you feel like donors or intended parents or people really should know about egg donation that we didn't ask you that we'd want to make sure we get in here that let people know about? There are people who fall in love with the donor, which is fine. They don't try to talk. If they if they meet the donor and there's some connection and for whatever strange reason, not all donors make the same amount of eggs. Some make five, five to 10, some make 15 to 30. Um, and there are times when people, for whatever reason, pick the donors that are making less eggs. And they... Um, once they have their um, retrieval and maybe they don't have the sex that they wanted for their embryo, um, they'll want to book a second cycle. And these, do- these previous donors will sometimes get booked, you know, four months in advance for a cycle to happen. So um, I recently, every once in a while, I hear somebody say, I told you that I might want a second cycle. What do you mean she has another cycle booked after mine? So you know, you know, the I might is might is not a. <laughs> I would just tell people, as a might, I just you know, if they pick a donor that they know is kind of runs on the lower side of things, they should book two cycles and cancel the second cycle if they don't need it. So I would make that recommendation to them. Um, uh, one of the one of the questions we have a lot is. Um, can I have lunch with my donor? Have dinner with my donor? And um, we're, we're happy to do that. We have people coming in from out of town uh, quite a bit to, to do this. Um, we just ask that 
they be that they be very clear about who should come to the lunch because often the the donors will want to bring their fiance, husband, boyfriend, which is sometimes awkward. Um, and, and that situation has to be managed. Um, and we also sometimes have intended parents who want to spend more than lunch with the donors and it becomes like lunch and dinner and it's, you know, and, and they're coming in from out of town and it's, we just ask them to be respectful of, uh, you know, the time and who should be at that meeting because, you know, the more people, the more interesting it gets sometimes. Um, I often get, I often get um, intended parents who are attorneys and want to do their own legal work. Ooh. That's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> that is a problem. So, um, you know, we, we, we send people to specialists in reproductive law because we find that we let people try to do their own legal work. It'll take 10 times longer and uh, not be as productive. But the last thing that we want is, a, and I'm sure it's the same for you in the surrogacy arena, the last thing we want are pitfalls in the legal process. Okay, and I don't want to go through this and screen donors and have something fall out because there's a disconnect on future contact needs. Um, there's a disconnect on blackout dates um, or, or there are things that end up in the egg donor contract that were not expected. So I try to do a lot of, this is why the law degree is good. I try to do a lot of pre-screening in terms of <laughs> yeah. future contact, the final disposition of the embryos and any embryo donation opportunities and make sure that's all off the table before we start screening, medical screening. Um, again, people do occasionally change their minds, but you know, I, I, I take notes on, on these things when we discuss it uh, because it does come up again. Yeah, it's so much to think about from both sides, definitely. So the, there are emerging discussions always on on embryo donation and, and how that's handled. And, and you know, in terms of the donors, some of them have very... Intended parents, too. Some of them just have very clear expectations that they're not going to destroy embryos and trying to donate them to science. So we work with embryo adoption agencies, um, which we don't do, but um, if, if that comes up. So, you know, there are a lot of emerging issues in, in that area. You know, it's just a lot of moving parts. And I do think we are in the, I always tell everybody in the logistics. So... It does kind of make sense a little bit just to get everybody where they need to be and make sure everything is kind of tucked away for now in the future. No, that's all um, good good advice and good things to look out for. And it's great that you're doing that much work of pre-screening and making sure everyone's on the same page and really working in the best interests of donors and intended parents to help help make make families and dreams come true. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you you sharing your expertise with us and coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Robin, to, for sharing your story, sharing your expertise, and answering all of our kind of bizarre questions. And Shocking both of us with that huge number, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> So that one's still, still shocking me. But yeah. And thank you to our listeners for joining us again. Yes, please. And please always give us feedback. Uh, we like to hear from you. Our hotline number 303-997-1903. Leave us iTunes reviews. Email us. We we love to hear from you guys in any way, shape, form possible. Uh, I even get comments on SoundCloud, which I love to hear those too, to, to see what, what you guys really think about each episode as we go. 
Um, and a huge thanks, as always, to our team. And I'm not going to forget Tyler this time <laughs> because last time I did and I felt really bad about it. Just start so, with him. Yeah, exactly. I'm starting with Tyler this time. So huge thanks to Tyler, to Lexi, to Ashley, to Amanda. And as always, Chris at Work at Bird Studios, who does incredible things and makes us sound incredible. So thank you. And we'll talk to you all next week. Bye.